Chapter 47 of Dread, A Tale of the Great Dismal Swamp by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Brandon. Dread, Chapter 47, Tom Gordon's Plans. Tom Gordon, in the meanwhile, had commenced ruling his paternal plantation in a manner very different from the former indulgent system. His habits of reckless and boundless extravagance and utter heedlessness caused his cravings for money to be absolutely insatiable, and, within legal limits, he had as little care how it was come by as a highway robber. It is to be remarked that Tom Gordon was a worse slaveholder and master from the very facts of certain desirable qualities in his mental constitution. For as good wine makes the strongest vinegar, so fine natures perverted make the worse vice. Tom had naturally a perfectly clear, perceptive mind and an energetic, prompt temperament. It was impossible for him, as many do, to sophisticate and delude himself with false views. He marched up to evil boldly, and with his eyes open. He had very little regard for public opinion, particularly the opinion of conscientious and scrupulous people. So he carried his purposes. It was very little matter to him what any one thought of them or him. They might complain till they were tired. After Clayton had left the place, he often pondered the dying words of Nina, that he should care for her people, that he should tell Tom to be kind to them. There was such an impassable gulf between the two characters that it seemed impossible that any peaceable communication should pass between them. Clayton thought within himself that it was utterly hopeless to expect any good arising from the sending of Nina's last message. But the subject haunted him. Had he any right to withhold it? Was it not his duty to try every measure, however apparently hopeless? Under the impulse of this feeling, he one day sat down and wrote to Tom Gordon an account worded with the utmost simplicity of the last hours of his sister's life hoping that he might read it and thus, if nothing more, his own conscience be absolved. Death and the grave, it is true, have sacred prerogatives, and it is often in their power to awaken a love which did not appear in life. There are few so hard as not to be touched by the record of the last days of those with whom they have stood in intimate relations. A great moralist says, there are few things not purely evil of which we can say without emotion this is the last the letter was brought to tom gordon one evening when for a wonder he was by himself his associates being off on an excursion while he was detained at home by a temporary illness he read it over therefore with some attention he was of too positive a character however too keenly percipient not to feel immediate pain in view of it. A man of another nature might have melted in tears over it, indulged in the luxury of sentimental grief, and derived some comfort from the exercise to go on in ways of sin. 
Not so with Tom Gordon. He could not afford to indulge in anything that roused his moral nature. He was doing wrong of set purpose with defiant energy, and his only way of keeping his conscience quiet was to maintain about him such a constant tumult of excitement as should drown reflection. He could not afford a tete-a-tete conversation with his conscience. Having resolved once for all to go on in his own wicked way serving the flesh and the devil, he had to watch against anything that might occasion uncomfortable conflict in his mind. He knew very well, lost man as he was, that there was something sweet and pure, high and noble, against which he was contending, and the letter was only like a torch which a fair angel might hold up shining into the filthy lair of a demon. He could not bear the light. He had no sooner read the note than he cast it into the fire and rang violently for a hot brandy toddy and a fresh case of cigars. The devil's last best artifice to rivet the fetters of his captives is the opportunity which these stimulants give them to command insanity at will. Tom Gordon was taken to bed drunk, and if a sorrowful guardian spirit hovered over him as he read the letter, he did not hear the dejected rustle of its retreating wings. The next day nothing was left, only a more decided antipathy to Clayton for having occasioned him so disagreeable a sensation. Tom Gordon, on the whole, was not unpopular in his vicinity. He determined to rule them all, and he did. All that uncertain, uninstructed, vagrant population, which abound in slave states, were at his knot and beck. They were his tools, prompt to aid him in any of his purposes, and convenient to execute vengeance on his adversaries. Tom was a determined slaveholder. He had ability enough to see the whole bearings of that subject from the beginning to the end, and he was determined that, while he lived, the first stone should never be pulled from the edifice in his state. He was a formidable adversary, because what he wanted in cultivation he made up in unscrupulous energy, and where he might have failed in argument, he could conquer by the cudgel and the bludgeon. He was as Frank Russell had supposed, the author of the paragraph which had appeared in The Trumpet of Freedom, which had already had its effect in awakening public suspicion. But what stung him to frenzy when he thought of it was that every effort which he had hitherto made to recover possession of Harry had failed. In vain he had sent out hunters and dogs. The swamp had been tracked in vain. He boiled and burned with fierce tides of passion, as he thought of him in his security defying his power. Some vague rumors had fallen upon his ear of the existence in the swamp of a negro conspirator of great energy and power whose lair had never yet been discovered, and he determined that he would raise heaven and earth to find him he began to suspect that there was, somehow, understanding and communication 
between Harry and those who were left on the plantation, and he determined to detect it. This led to the scene of cruelty and tyranny to which we made allusion in a former chapter. The mangled body was buried, and Tom felt neither remorse nor shame. Why should he? Protected by the express words of legal decision? He had only met with an accident in the exercise of his lawful power on a slave in the act of rebellion. The fact is, Kite, he said, to his boon companion, Theophilus Kite, as they were one day sitting together. I'm bound to have that fellow. I'm going to publish a proclamation of outlawry and offer a reward for his head. They will bring it in, I'm thinking. I'll put it up to a handsome figure, for that will be better than nothing. Pity you couldn't catch him alive, said Kite and make an example of him. I know it, said Tom. I'd take him the long way round, that I would. That fellow has been an eyesore to me ever since I was a boy. I believe all the devils that are in me are up about him. Tom, said Kite, you've got the devil in you, no mistake. To be sure, I have, said Tom. I only want a chance to express him. I wish I could get hold of the fellow's wife. I could make him wince there, I guess. I'll get her, too, one of these days. But now, Kite, I'll tell you the fact is, somebody round here is in league with him. They know about him. I know they do. There's that squeaky, leathery, long-nosed skinflint trades with the niggers in the swamp. I know he does but he is a double and twisted liar, and you can't get anything out of him. One of these days I'll burn up that old den of his and shoot him, if he don't look out. Jim Stokes told me that he slept down there one night when he was tracking, and that he heard Skinflint talking with somebody between twelve and one o'clock, and he looked out and saw him selling powder to a nigger. Oh, that couldn't be, Harry, said Kite. No, but it's one of the gang he's in with. And then there's that Hark. Jim says that he saw him talking, giving a letter that he got out of the post office to a man that rode off towards the woods. I thought we'd have the truth out of his old hide. But he didn't hold out as I thought he would. Holcomb don't understand his business said Kite. He shouldn't have used him up so fast. Holcomb is a bother, said Tom, like all the rest of those fellows. Hark was a desperately resolute fellow. And it's well enough he's dead, because he was getting sullen and making the others rebellious. Holcomb, you see, had taken a fancy to his wife, and Hark was jealous. Quite a romance, said Kite, laughing. And now I'll tell you another thing, said Tom, that I'm bound to reform. There's a canting, sneaking, dribbling, whining old priest that's ravaging these parts and getting up a muss among people about the abuses of the slaves. And I'm not going to have it. I'm going to shut up his mouth. I shall inform him pretty succinctly 
that if he does much more in this region he'll be illustrated with a coat of tar and feathers good for you said kite now said tom i understand that tonight he's going to have a general snivelling season in the old log church out on the cross run and they're going to form a church on anti-slavery principles contemptible whelps not a copper to bless themselves with dirty sweaty greasy mechanics with their spawn of children think of the impudence of their getting together and passing anti-slavery resolutions and resolving they won't admit slaveholders to the communion i have a great mind to let them try the dodge once by george if i wouldn't walk up and take their bread and wine and pitch it to thunder are they really going to form such a church that's the talk said tom but they'll find they have reckoned without their host i fancy you see i just tipped jim stokes the wink says i jim don't you think they'll want you to help the music there tonight jim took it once and he said he would be on the ground with a dog or two and some old tin pans oh we shall get them up an orchestra i promise you and some of our set are going over to see the fun there's bill akers and bob story and sim dexter will be over here to dinner and towards evening we'll ride over end of chapter forty seven recording by john brandon